ESPN, Pinellas Park, W262CP, Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply the best Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. We want to consider today and next week the very important subject of how the Church of Jesus Christ is financed. How and and why is it financed a certain way? You see, in light of Christ's statement in Matthew 16, verse 18, he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. We do need to understand what his word teaches concerning how he financially provides for the needs of his church. Welcome to Verse by Verse. As chairman of the deacons in my home church, these next few lessons will touch me intensely. Making sure that our bank account stays in the black while seeing to it that we cover the expenses of our various ministries and the facility is a large part of my role. And if I let it, it could become the most nerve-wracking position in the church. But I know that whatever God ordains, He pays for. So it's actually exciting to see the way He moves people to provide for His work. At the same time, though, there is always a sense of responsibility that we're using His money wisely and effectively. After all, it is His money. Isn't it amazing, though, in our own personal lives, how much of His money He lets us spend on ourselves? I'm glad you're here today as Pastor Steve Kreloff dives into a subject that makes many people just a little uncomfortable, church finances. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He's reached the midpoint in a series of studies inspired by something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. He told Peter that he himself would be building his church, and he said what the foundation would be. And we've been expanding on that introduction to the church by examining other passages that shed light on the nature of the church. So, if you can follow in your Bible, get ready to turn some pages today. And please, don't let this topic scare you away. I think you'll find what Pastor Steve has to say today to be quite helpful in understanding the Bible's perspective on the resources he allows us to manage. A number of years ago, I read the story of a Christian woman who was complaining to her friend about how much money her church costs to run. She said, our church costs too much. They're always asking for money. To which her friend replied, some time ago, a little boy was born into our home. He cost us a great deal of money from the very beginning. He had a big appetite. He needed clothes, medicine, toys, and even a puppy. Then he went to school, and that cost a lot more. Later, he went to college Then he began dating, and that cost a small fortune. But in his senior year at college, he died. And since the funeral, he hasn't cost us a penny. Now, which situation do you think we would rather have? I'm sure her friend was stunned. But then after a meaningful pause, this woman continued and said, as long as this church lives, it will cost money. When it dies for want of support, it won't cost us anything. A living church has the most vital message for all the world today. Therefore, I am going, she said, to give and pray with everything I have to keep our church alive. There is no question that a local church these days does cost a great deal of money to run. There are huge maintenance costs for the upkeep of buildings. Utility bills have to be paid. 
skyrocketing health insurance costs, educational materials, office supplies, staff salaries, and missionary support. And then there are numerous other miscellaneous expenses for the ongoing daily operations of the church. But have you ever wondered what expenses the early church faced? I mean, what, what did they have to pay for? In the apostolic era, after all, churches didn't have any buildings or properties to maintain. They all met in homes. They didn't have the upkeep of buildings. Nor did they have to pay for any written materials because the printed page hadn't been invented yet. Nor did they have to deal with many of the budgetary items that churches today are faced with, like the upkeep of modern equipment or postage, which, by the way, is increasing. Continuing educational conferences, ministry resources, youth programs, building funds, a Christian school, and on and on it goes. Yet, it's important for us to realize that even without those expenses that we face, even without these current day ministry expenses, the New Testament says that in the early church, offerings were taken each week as Christians were expected and even commanded to give their money when they gathered together on Sundays. Now, where does it say that? Well, several places say this, but for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, we read, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save. He's talking about putting aside money. When you gather, he said, on Sunday, take a collection Then save it, put it aside, and what he means by that is save it, and then when I come, I will take it and distribute it to where it needs to be distributed. So they did collect money, Paul said, every Sunday, first day of the week. But for what? What possible expenses did they have? What did they need that required them to collect money on a weekly basis? Well, according to the New Testament, the early church collected money solely for the purpose of financially supporting two groups of people. Number one, their offerings were for the financial support of their pastors who taught them the word of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. In other words, those who receive the spiritual ministry of the word of God from their pastors are to reciprocate by sharing their material possessions with their instructors. In fact, Paul told Timothy in his first letter to the young man to instruct the church to make sure that those elders, he said, who labored in the word and doctrine, make sure, Timothy, that the church understands they are to receive double honor, he said. Now, double honor doesn't mean that they receive twice the salary of others. But what it does mean is be financially generous with them. The the broad general principle Paul outlined in 1 Corinthians 9.14 when he said, those who give themselves to the ministry of proclaiming the gospel should get their living from the gospel. That is to say, those who are full-time workers who give themselves to proclaiming the gospel need to be freed to do that, so support them financially. Now, the second group of people that the early church collected money for was the poor, those who were financially needy in the congregations. We see this very clearly from a number of meaningful scriptures, but let's look at Acts chapter 2. I want to show you how the early church operated. Now, Acts chapter 2 and then Acts chapter 4 speak of that wonderful church at Jerusalem. 
the church where the apostles were the first elders, where they continued in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, but they had some financial needs. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 44, it says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, this isn't communism. Nobody forced them to do this, but they just shared amongst themselves. What was mine was yours. That was the attitude. Two chapters over, chapter 4, starting in verse 32, we read even more about the same congregation. And the congregation of those who believe, verse 32, were of one heart, and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy, notice this, now we're talking about thousands of people, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, what we see from these two passages is the example of the church at Jerusalem and how thoughtful and sensitive they were to meet the needs of the poor in their congregation. But that was also specifically taught to them. In, we have in the New Testament letters specific exhortations and commands to minister to those who are financially hurting. Where do we read this? Well, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy in chapter 6 says this, a very interesting passage, I might say, unusual in the sense that you don't read these things throughout the New Testament concerning verse 17, but he says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world. So speak, Timothy, those in the congregation at Ephesus who are wealthy, here's what you say, and this is why I say this is unique. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That is to say, don't think that, that you blessed yourself. God blessed you. Don't be, don't be conceited about this. Fix your hope on on God, he says, who richly, notice this, supplies us with all things to enjoy. If God has blessed you financially, then enjoy it. Don't think that you brought this about. It is God's blessing on your life. But then notice how he balances this in the next verse, verse 18. Instruct them, that is those who are wealthy, who are to enjoy the blessings that God has given them, instruct them to do good. To be rich in good works, he clarifies it, to be generous and ready to share. Yes, enjoy your money, but don't hoard it. Don't spend it all on yourself. Be generous with others. That's why it's a unique passage of Scripture. In one chapter back, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. A widow indeed would be a widow who has no support coming in from any other place, so the church needs to make sure she's taken care of. She has no son or daughter who can uh, take care of her. There certainly was no government welfare system. So the church needs to step up. In Galatians chapter 2, very interesting. In Galatians chapter 2, we see Paul's heart in this whole matter, in the heart of the early church leaders. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, 
He says, in recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, meaning pillars in the Jerusalem church, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So what Paul is saying at this point, don't turn from there, but Paul is saying, these men in the church recognized that God had given Barnabas and me the ministry of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and they had the ministry of preaching the gospel in the Jewish world. But then he said in verse 10, they only asked us, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I also was eager to do. What Paul is saying is they said, hey, we recognize God's work in in this. We recognize God has called you to the ministry of Gentiles. But remember, Paul, in preaching the gospel, don't, don't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor. And Paul said, I was eager to do that. I'm glad they said that because that's my heart. So it is safe to conclude from these few biblical references that while the early church certainly didn't have some of the same ministry expenses that we have today, they did have financial challenges. And they faced these challenges without any government assistance in making sure that their pastors as well as the poor and the needy in their churches were taken care of. And this really couldn't have been easy for them. In fact, we know it wasn't easy for them. It was a great challenge. Why? Because most of the people who made up these early churches were on the poor side themselves. Some of them were just were slaves. They were slaves. And so they had to have concerns about their own needs being met. In other words, in taking care of the poor in the church, they had concerns about who was going to take care of them. And yet the Bible said, take care of the poor. Take care of your pastors. Now, In light of our ongoing series on the nature of the church, this being the sixth week, we are looking at the nature of the church as a springboard from Matthew chapter 16. We want to consider today and next week the very important subject of how the church of Jesus Christ is financed. How and and why is it financed a certain way? You see, in light of Christ's statement in Matthew 16, verse 18, he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. We do need to understand what his word teaches concerning how he financially provides for the needs of his church. If the Lord is sovereign and the sovereign head of his church, and he is, it's only reasonable to assume that Jesus must have a plan whereby he meets the ongoing ministry needs of his work on earth. And he does. He does. He has a plan. We need to know that plan. Listen very closely. Here's the plan. His plan for meeting the financial needs of his church is for Christians to support the work by being generous in their giving. Not just giving, but by being generous in their giving. Generosity is the key truth concerning New Testament giving, as well as Old Testament giving for that matter. See, contrary to what many believe, contrary to what many have been taught, the New Testament does not teach that giving can be reduced to a, to a tithe, an obligatory tithe. A tithe means 10%. There is nothing in the New Testament that commands us to do that. The tithe, meaning 10%, was strictly an Old Testament required tax. It was a tax imposed on the people to to pay the government. It was a religious government, and it was a tax. It was not a love offering. They had no choice in the matter. It was not voluntary. 
There were voluntary love offerings in the Old Testament, by the way. Bring the first fruits of how God has blessed you, but not the tithe. The tithe was a requirement. In fact, that's why in Malachi, God says the tithe is mine. It's mine. You've held it back, but it's mine. It went to support the religious activities of the nation of Israel. It may also interest you to know that the Jewish people were required to pay several tithes. People who are into tithing often don't think about this. It was more 23% a year rather than 10%. I say 23% because one of their tithe taxes was due every three years. It was 23%. It's actually closer to 30% than 10%. Often people don't stress that. But understand that there is absolutely no command in the New Testament letters for us to tithe. Now, does the New Testament ever mention tithing? Yes, but always in the context of Jesus addressing uh, either his disciples or the Pharisees who were at that point under the Jewish legal system. It was absolutely right for him to say it. But, but once you get to the New Testament era, the church age, which started on the day of Pentecost, and the New Testament letters are written, there is no command No statement anywhere about tithing. Why? As we said, it was a national tax. Limited to the Jewish people and limited under their legal system. The closest thing in the New Testament to the concept of a tithe is Paul's command in Romans 13 that Christians are to pay their taxes to their government, to the governing authorities. Why, Paul says, because God has established all governments for the protection of people and to punish evildoers. And in that sense, he says that civil authorities are his ministers. They don't have to be believers. He's not talking about that. But they are his ministers in that he has raised them up to serve people. And Paul says, you are to pay your taxes. Romans chapter 13. But nowhere, as I said, do we read in the New Testament that tithes are commanded to be given as a religious tax in our weekly collections. Instead, we do read other truths about this. What do we read? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. Let me show you what we read. And if there was any place where Paul would have said, pay a tithe, it's here. In 1 Corinthians 16, beginning at verse 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So Paul's saying, this is not limited to you. This is my teaching to all the Gentile churches that I'm, that I'm ministering to. What was his teaching? On the first day of every week, meaning when you gather, each one of you, note this, is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Now notice, Paul says, first of all, that we are to give on a regular basis. It ought not to be a hit or miss deal. It's a regular basis. When you come the first day of the week, here's what you do. And then he said, your giving is to be in proportion to how much God has prospered you. That's the point of saying, put aside and save as he may prosper as your life has been blessed by God. In other words, you choose the percentage of the amount that you give, but it should be based on the guideline of how God has blessed you financially. If he's blessed you a little bit, then give based on that amount. If he's blessed you more, then give more. That's what he's saying. We also read in 2 Corinthians, a very important statement, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Notice verses 6 and 7. As I said, folks, if there was any place that 
the tithe would fit if Paul was going to teach it, these are the places. He doesn't say that, as God has, has prospered you. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, now, he's talking about financially. He says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you're stingy, he's saying, then God's not going to be generous with you. And he who sows bountifully, meaning if you are generous, if you give liberally, will also reap bountifully. And then he says in verse 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God, he says, loves a cheerful giver. Now, giving ought to be characterized by what Paul teaches here. Number one, he says, it ought to be characterized first by generosity and not stinginess. That's what he means about sowing bountifully, not stinginess. Secondly, it ought to be characterized by determining in advance how much you are going to give. That's what Paul means when he says, as he has purposed in his heart. Determine beforehand in your heart what you're going to give. Let me translate this for you. Giving is not sporadic. It's not on the spur of the moment. Oh, I think I'll do this. Oh, I feel like doing this on a Sunday. No, I don't feel like giving on this Sunday. I I might give next Sunday. I don't know. Paul says, no, ahead of time, purpose in your heart what you're going to give. And make sure it's based on generosity, sowing bountifully. Then he says, your giving should be characterized by a great sense of joy and freedom. That's what he means when he says, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Don't Give with a sad reluctance in your heart like, oh, it's Sunday. I've got to give. But you are thinking, I don't want to do this. This is duty. This is obligation. I could, I could spend this all on myself and I've got to do this. Paul says, don't, don't do it that way. Don't give with sadness in your heart. In fact, notice what he says in verse 7. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. That's how we should give. The Greek word for cheerful gives us our English word hilarious. And I don't think that means that, that you're giggling as the offering plate is going by you. I don't think that's what it means at all. What it does mean is that God has a special affection in his heart for those who give with an attitude of pleasure and happiness in their hearts. That's exactly what he means. He, he loves all, but he has a special love for those who give cheerfully, who don't give reluctantly. We don't give begrudgingly. See, folks, the way the Lord provides for the ministry needs of his church is through the generosity of his people. And there's a concern in my heart as your pastor teacher that there may be some at Lakeside who are not aware of their biblical responsibility to give generously in the support of of this church. And and I think I, I have to share some of the blame for that, because as your pastor teacher, I need to teach you on that. Uh, teaching about money is not an easy thing for me to do. I tend to shy away from it, but it is a responsibility that I do have. And so I want to make sure that you're taught on this, and this fits in with our series on the church. It may be that some are so new to the Christian life and certainly new to the ministry of Lakeside that you have never been taught about this. So I want us to see what the scripture says about generous giving. If you ever take a long drive north on Interstate 75, you'll eventually pass through Lima, Ohio. On the west side of the road, you might see a factory building with a large cross and a sign on the side that says, Christ is the answer. That's the home of U.S. plastics founded during the Great Depression by Stanley Tam, but 100% owned by God, 
since Dr. Tam signed it over to a nonprofit foundation in the 50s. Stanley started out with $20 of his own and $12 that he'd borrowed from his dad and has since given more than $140 million to God's work around the world. He found out that God really does love a cheerful giver. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, a daily study in God's Word led by pastor teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. You can find out more about Verse by Verse at versebyverseradio.org. As we examine the nature of the church, we find that it's a broad subject. We've been considering its founder, its builder, and its government. Now we're moving into territory that makes some of us a little uncomfortable. How the church is financed. It's a little like the man who told his pastor after church, I like your preaching, but now you've gone to meddling. But if you can look at giving objectively and biblically, we'll soon find that following God's plan for the money he lets us manage opens the door to more joy than we would have thought possible. That doesn't mean that we ought to be generous in order to get more stuff or that generosity guarantees prosperity. But on the other hand, we really can't